What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I am really, really excited for you all to listen to this episode. Not only is this an amazing author that I speak with, but it's on a topic that is very important and close to me personally. So today, my guest is Dr. Carl Fisher, and we're here to talk about his new book, The Urge. All right. So the book is about the history of addiction and even more importantly, how we treat addiction and how we talk about addiction. So those of you who are un, uh, uh, familiar with me, if you're new to the podcast, I am a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. Back in 2012, I got sober, so I'm coming up on 10 years in June. But yeah, it almost killed me. I had like less than a 20% chance of living. I had congestive heart failure at the age of 27. And I come from a family of addicts and alcoholics, mental health issues running through my family, all that. And Carl Fisher he is actually in recovery as well, but he actually became a doctor and he specializes in addiction. But anyways, I am usually a not a fan of books that are about like history and stuff. And B, it's hard for me to find many addiction books that I like. Like this is one of those topics where there's so much nuance to the conversation. And a lot of people who write books on this topic are very black and white, right? Like they find an, an aspect of, you know, what causes addiction or how to treat addiction or whatever it is. And they just write an entire book about why they're right. These other methods are wrong. Carl Fisher with this book. And as you'll see in this conversation, he breaks down how this is a very complex, difficult issue that is very nuanced and understanding the history of it and how we talk about it, how we treat it. And all these things like that is the most important part, because if this was a simple uh, uh, solution or a simple problem, rather, like we would have solved it by now. But we reached a record number of overdose deaths in, I believe, 2020. Uh, we had 100,000 overdose deaths just in the United States. Right. So we got to figure something out, because for every single death that happens, there is an entire family network. There are friends. There are people who knew that person. Right. They're affected, too. So addiction is touching everybody in some way shape or form and it's so 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 important and this is by far one of the best books that i have ever read on the topic so i really hope that you all go out and grab a copy because it's one of the most important things for us to educate ourselves about because it hasn't gone away. It's only been increasing over the years. And I can go on a rant and a tangent about this all day long, but I'm going to shut up because you all need to hear this conversation with Dr. Carl Fisher. All right. So we cover a lot of this stuff in our conversation. He's so thoughtful and insightful, and I love how he discusses this. So make sure you head down to the description, follow him over on social media, but more importantly, grab a copy of this book, share the episode, spread the word about his book and his work, because I'm telling you, uh, it will enlighten people to what addiction is, how it starts, what treatments are beneficial, and all sorts of stuff. 
So yeah, um, but yeah, before we get started, make sure you follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul, so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. I also love chatting with all of you. So yeah, at the Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. But I've also been uh, dabbling with TikTok quite a bit. For all of you who are fans of TikTok, make sure you follow me over there at the Rewired Soul. I'm doing a lot of content around books, like little mini reviews. I'm also like, uh, I just did some uh, videos today about like, hey. Here's how you can get like free books, like to, to teach all of you how I get advanced copies and stuff like that, because you can do it too if you're a, a book fan like me, which you probably are. All right. So follow me over on uh, TikTok as well. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Carl Fisher about his new book, The Urge. Hello, Carl. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm super excited that you're here. I binged your new book, The Urge. So before we jump into the book, uh, for the audience and like to kind of set up the book, I, I want to ask you, can you share a little bit about like your personal story with like substances, recovery, getting into your professional career and all that stuff? Sure. Yeah, because that is the setup. For the book that was the motivation yeah uh about 10 years ago i was finishing up med school and getting ready for a psychiatric residency both at columbia university in new york and i really felt like i was on top of the world i was winning awards i was working really hard a lot of like frantic workaholism you could call it and i also had a really big problem with alcohol primarily but also stimulants mm -hmm. mostly in the form of alcohol. Uh, which I was taking to counteract the hangovers the next day, but also just to keep up the frantic pace of like research, writing papers, all the rest. Mm -hmm. And then it all came crashing down early in my psychiatric residency. I had a manic episode. I was admitted to Bellevue Hospital in a psychotic state. And in the process, I had to go to a special kind of treatment for doctors which in a way were, there were some problems with that program, mm -hmm. but it, and it brought me face to face with some of the problems of our current treatment system. Uh, but in the end, I was very lucky and privileged to be able to go and mm -hmm. uh, wrestled with my own denial a little bit and then got into treatment. And I was in a specialized sort of treatment monitoring program for physicians. Uh, so that, that's my personal background. And then what I found about you know, a year or so into my own recovery was that I still had this question. I still mm -hmm. didn't really fully get what had happened to me. Yeah. And I, I felt the desire to, to learn more, not just in science and medicine, which I was studying. I had done a neuroscience research fellowship, but, but to look out beyond at the philosophy and history and sociology of how we understand addiction, the, the history of addiction as an intellectual history, as a history mm -hmm. of ideas. Uh, and so that's what led to the book. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I could definitely relate to that. Not the, not the, uh, medical residency and all that, because I'm a college dropout. Uh, that's reminded that you took me, but, uh, but no, um, I remember being a couple of years into recovery and I had so many questions personally for me, it was, I was, I was sitting at work. Like I finally got back in the working world and everybody was going out for drinks. I was like, why me? Why can't I go and just have some drinks with all these people? I'm like, what's different. And I ended up, uh, you mentioned David chef in your book, but I ended up picking up one of his books. It was called clean. And it was kind of like, you know, all of the, you know, quote unquote science around it. And it really helped me understand like that. It was more than just what I had learned in 12 step programs, but then years later, and we'll dive into some of these topics from your book, I realized that the science isn't as, you know, settled as like, kind of like what I thought it had been in that book. And that book is years old. It's like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. But, um, but yeah, that's one of the reasons I loved your book. You brought so much nuance to that conversation. So like on a, on a broad scale, because I, I think about, you know, the overdose rates and everything like that. But when I think about that, I think about all of the friends, family members, everybody else who's affected in that circle. Right. So with your book, what do you, what are you hoping to bring to the, the conversation, not just for people in recovery or maybe clinicians, but like loved ones as well. Where do you think, what do you think we're missing from the overall addiction conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I really do love David Sheff's work mm -hmm. in that book, Clean. So this is not a commentary on that book, which I think does a good job, especially keeping in mind that it was published, a, you know, a little while ago, certainly yeah. in scientific terms. Um, but a lot of my own investigations were spurred on by the the sense of incompleteness around a lot of the contemporary discourse that there's a lot of quick fix discussions. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of single, simple solutions. People like to say addiction is this or addiction is that, or kind of boil it down to one theory, which isn't really a comprehensive theory overall. And as somebody in the medical world and in recovery and uh, someone who had transitioned actually from neuroscience to bioethics, where I was studying yeah. some of the, the philosophy and the way we think about um, mental disorders, how, how we even get clear on what a mental disorder is. I mm -hmm. found that all really unsatisfying and sometimes even a little dehumanizing. Like yeah. you know, it's one of the most complicated social problems that we have addiction and mm -hmm. people have struggled with it as I found in my research for millennia, as far, literally as far back as you can look in history, yeah. back to the Indian Rig Vedas, which are you know, one gambling addiction story that comes from 1000 BC. Uh, so how can we possibly boil it down into one simplistic model or story. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, what I'm hoping, especially for people who are in the trenches, people who are struggling themselves or struggling to make sense of their loved one's behavior, looking for help, what I'm hoping for is almost like an antidote mm -hmm. to the oversimplified narratives. I think it would be a tremendous benefit just to pause and step back from that a little bit, yeah. uh, just to have a better shot of appreciating the full spectrum of addictive problems and the, the, the diversity and the heterogeneity and how it manifests differently with different people and mm -hmm. um, all of the many different ways that people have found recovery and found ways to help uh, over the centuries, really. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because uh, 
like I, I found myself so frustrated while reading your book, but also uh, from something I love. I always say, because I'm a nonfiction reader, I always say that I love books that don't like push an opinion on me. They leave me with questions. They leave. They, I walk away and say, huh, those are interesting points, right? But the whole time I was reading your book, I don't know if this was your intention, but it seems like you left a lot of your opinions out of it. Right. Like as you were, it felt like as you were explaining like the science and the nuances and like the different ways of looking at addiction and, you know, from the philosophy to the science. Right. And I'm just like, just tell me what you think, Carl. Just tell me what you think. But it seems like you were just kind of laying out the information. Like every now and then there was a few uh, of your opinions, but not as much. I was like, no, Carl, tell me what you think the source of the problem is. Tell me what you think the answer is. So, mm. so was that intentional or, or, uh, do, is that for is that for book two where you have a more <laughs> a more opinionated stance on this stuff? No, it, it actually worked in a different direction, Chris, because I wanted a definitive answer when I was starting out, and I started yeah. out much more arrogant. I was I was much earlier in recovery. It was mm. just earlier in my life, and I really hoped to tie it together and find the find my own definitive story of addiction mm. and wrap it up in a nice uh, tidy bow. And what I found, but I. I also recognized that the history had a lot to offer and I didn't know most of what it would have to say. And so I really wanted to set out and let the history teach me what it would mm. uh, to not have that many preconceived notions. What I found was that it was more a process of undoing than anything else, that there were so many different examples and episodes and um, fascinating stories from the past that it, it actually undid a lot of my preconceived notions and um the, still i very much appreciate neuroscience uh and some of the ways that people have used science in past eras like say during the temperance movement in the 1880s where people came up with stories about how the nerves in the stomach mm -hmm. uh stimulated the craving for alcohol um but what that stuff showed me is the way that scientific stories are sometimes just kind of grafted onto the prevailing social opinions. And uh, what we actually need in many cases is more humility, even mm. while we take what we can learn uh, from the scientific stories. So I, honestly, I took it, the writing process for me was me taking it as far as I could go because I would write, even just literally in the writing process, I would write down and ask myself, do I know this? How do I know this? What is the evidence on which it lies? Is it useful? You know, mm -hmm. the, the classic cliche is, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? <laughs> yeah. Does it need to be said by me now? I can't even tell you how many hundreds of thousands of words are on the cutting room floor because they weren't laser focused on what actually mattered for my life and my patients' lives yeah. and for people's lives. Um, and even so, uh, you know, I, I think in many cases, it's sort of unsatisfying. It was unsatisfying for me not to say, oh, here's the master theory of addiction, but I don't think that exists today in 2022 yeah. and we have to be honest about that yeah yeah it, it's interesting i'm curious what you mean uh about you know some of your ideas that had to change because i i had a similar experience i remember getting sober and i walk in the rooms and i'm like and uh i i often say like you know the the great epiphany i had was like i don't know nearly as much as i think i do right uh you know my mom for example she's a psychologist and she got sober after starting, it, it, it lines up with your story pretty well. My mom's a lot closer to your story. So she's in mm. recovery too. And we'll talk about the whole family they should think. But anyways, um, I saw how she humbled herself, right? And I was like, well, I'm not nearly as smart as my mom with a PhD, so I need to humble myself. But then there came to this point where I'm like, 
I got this, right? I know, right? Go to meetings, work the steps, get a sponsor, boom, I know it all. And I, I got very arrogant about it. And I started working in treatment and I worked at a large treatment facility here in Las Vegas. Like we had an inpatient that had like 150 beds. Wow. Uh, and then we had an outpatient attached to a sober living that had 60 to 100 people. So it was a lot of people. But I started recognizing those nuances, right? I started recognizing that you give people the same tools and you get different results and all these other things. So I had to start undoing some of the things. And I already thought I was intellectually humble, but then I had to humble myself some more and shift how I was viewing it. So I'm curious, like through this process and kind of like questioning your beliefs, what are some of the ideas that changed from like pre writing the book to the process of writing and maybe even after? Yeah. Well, just because we're talking about treatment, I will, there are a lot of ways that it changed. I mean, there mm -hmm. are a lot of surprises. One surprise was that we've had drug epidemics and addiction epidemics going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And that was a big shock to me. I thought there was something unique about the opioid crisis right now. Mm. And it is awful. I mean, it's historic. And there are a lot of simple things we could be doing to save lives. It, and there was an opioid crisis in the 1970s and in the 1950s and in the 1900s and in the 1860s and there was a tobacco epidemic in the 16th century so forth and so on but anyway um there are a lot of surprising things but what what comes to mind for me right now when you talk about treatment uh is as a treating psychiatrist i thought addiction was a thing mm. i really thought addiction was a phenomenon that existed almost outside of history and that because people have done this work for things like depression and anxiety. Uh, Andrew Solomon, for example, a writer I deeply, deeply admire, wrote this book, The Noonday Demon, uh, where he talks about accounts of depression going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And he mm -hmm. argues that depression, uh, while responsive to social and cultural forces, was really similar um, across history. And uh, what I found was that, and I really learned from a lot of historians who are very focused on this, that um, addiction does not exist outside history that um, there is a fellowship there. And when I read about, say, the person with gambling addiction from 1000 BC, or the ancient Greeks and Romans, or uh, St. Augustine, who in many ways wrote the first addiction memoir, the Confessions, um, I felt a great fellowship and kinship with them. Uh, and I don't think that addiction is just one thing that exists unchanged throughout history. Uh, if anything, it's more likely that there's a diversity of different kinds of addiction and then it manifests differently in different people because of all sorts of different causes and conditions. Uh, and already that's like a big, like yeah. head F. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you curse on your podcast, no, but um, we do here. <laughs> uh, it's I, just to think, think across multiple levels and to think about a thing that exists, but is not, um, a firm and graspable thing that's already getting into the world of almost spirituality in a way. Yeah. And this is, this is one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on because, th and this could take up the whole rest of the time. I hope it does it. But yeah, when we're talking about how there's all these different components and everything like that, and here's, here's what's messed me up just for years. I'm coming up on 10 years and it's messed me up this entire time. And it's this abstinence versus, you know, kind of harm reduction, right? So for example, I have been 1000% abstinent, right? Like my, uh, I started with alcohol, then I got into prescription opioids. I got in a car accident at like three or four years sober, no pain pills, right? But 
uh, I had many relapses that started with like marijuana and then I went right back to opioids. I went right back to alcohol. And, you know, when I, and, and one of the reasons I didn't get sober, which is a reason a lot of people, aside from me living in Las Vegas, right? It was like, what, you want me to never drink, like never even sip a beer again? But through countless experiences, I realized once I put something in me, like, I don't, I just don't know what's going to happen. Right. I'm 10 years now. Uh, weed's legal in Nevada. I don't even like weed, but anyways, but like what I'm getting at is there's, there's people and you, you talked about this a little bit in the book. There are people, for example, who had like a meth addiction, a heroin addiction, right? Like it was destroying their life. And now they haven't touched heroin in years, but they can have some beers. You know what I mean? And that, that is like this weird phenomenon of addiction that just blows my mind and you touch on it a little but do we have any answers because i know there's you know we don't know as much about the brain as like i used to think it was like oh we just have like this dopamine problem we get way too much dopamine but it's not that simple so what what are some of the possible theories around why some people have to totally abstain and others i don't know don't you know what i mean yeah, it's still very controversial. And Chris, I mean, that really got in my head too. And yeah. it was a really important question for me. And in a way it was pivotal. It was pivotal. And you know, because you read the book, but one of the closing chapters, I, I spent a lot of time on this notion of natural recovery. Like yeah. you described, some people have a serious problem with substances. And then without medical intervention and without even any sort of mutual health intervention, like when you're otherwise, they just stop. They just stop and they get better. And in some samples, more for alcohol, uh, it could be like 70% of people who meet criteria for a severe substance use problem uh, eventually just sort of grow out of it. And so what does that mean? Um, there are a lot of different theories about what that means. And it took, in a way, it took me the whole book to get to that point. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the reason it mattered for me is I had this question in my head, at least in early recovery, where I'm like, well, maybe I'm one of those guys. Yeah. Maybe I was burnt out from the moral injury of a broken healthcare system during my training, or maybe I was immature. Maybe I needed more life experience. Maybe I needed to have a stable, like more, a more stable life and not be like single living in downtown New York, whatever. There are all, all, all sorts of rationalizations for why maybe I was one of these people who could go back to moderation. And, um, you know, the decision I made for myself was that uh, even though Addiction exists on a spectrum, even though there's no clear, bright dividing line between people with addiction and the rest of the human population. And even though some people seem to grow out of it in a way, in that natural recovery way, you know, I ran that experiment enough times. Yeah. Maybe it's possible. But for me, one of the gifts of getting into recovery was bringing me back into touch with my own uh, spiritual journey because mm -hmm. I was really into Zen before I entered recovery. Yeah. And that was one of the things addiction took away from me. I was one of those guys who was trying to meditate my pain away. Yeah. Um, what I found is I also needed mutual help recovery support in order to have a meaningful spiritual practice. Um, and, you know, it just so happens that in that spiritual practice, there's a big focus on being careful about intoxicants. Where I would challenge you, Chris, is, um, I don't know that anyone can be a thousand percent abstinent because, you know, there are some traditions where people don't drink caffeine. I just saw you pounding an energy drink. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. there are people, you know, like you say, weed is legal now. Um, tobacco is legal too. That's the thing that's ultimately going to kill both of my parents. Mm. Uh, that's an extremely dangerous addiction. And even aside from that, um, 
you know, there's gambling. Uh, I have a, not the healthiest relationship with food. Sometimes I still impulsively reach for sugar. Mm-hmm. I think anger can be that way. Work can be that way. Uh, so these dividing lines we set up between different substances or different behaviors as addictive versus not uh, can sometimes be a little bit misleading that um, uh, I don't know that there's a difference between abstinence and harm reduction. I think that ideological division is a little too played up. Yeah. Um, and in the end, there is no such thing as perfect abstinence and harm reduction is not really in opposition to abstinence. I've seen so many cases in my practice where like something that you might call harm reduction, like meeting somebody where they're at and tolerating their moderation and working with them along the way leads them to abstinence, maybe, or maybe not. Either way is fine. As long as your yardstick is making the person's life better. I think that um, these things are totally compatible. Yeah. So that, that brings me to another question because this is where like, I am, I'm very pro harm reduction like it seems like within a realm that kind of makes sense right like uh i like uh you know for example when speaking of harm reduction because it's become this very vague term but you know like safe injection sites and uh methadone clinics and all that stuff i do think that there should be if we had the resources like therapy or like required like 12 step meetings whatever it is right but here's here's where i get most conflicted so uh, I, I worked in I worked in treatment for three years. Within that three years, like I said, it was a high population, so m- the numbers are going to be bigger. But uh, up to my count, I I had over eighty deaths, right, from past clients. Okay, ninety percent suicides, a uh, few health issues, uh, not suicides, uh, overdoses, few health issues, few suicides, right, but most overdoses. And if I had to take just the overdoses, just the overdoses. I would say the majority of them was they left treatment, right? Tolerances changed. They did it one more time. It took them out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that is when the, the, the harm reduction model or a, uh, like, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with like smart recovery and stuff like that. That's where I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can agree with it because, you know, there are some people who are like, okay, well, let me see if I, let, let me see if I am that guy. If I'm the guy who could do it in moderation, And, you know, like, and they just, you know, that next time is the one that kills them. So Mm -hmm. that's where I get, I I get really, really conflicted. So I don't know your thoughts on this, or if there's like some sort of model that, you know, like safe injection sites, for example, great. You got people with Narcan just boom, right there. (laughs) You know what I mean? But, but for a lot of people, they're, they're dying alone in their homes, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I don't know if there's like a a better way of doing it because I'm all about like meeting people where they're at, right? If you're not ready, like I wasn't ready for a long time. And we, you know, we often say like, fortunately your rock bottom wasn't death. You know what I mean? So, so is there, is there a better way of doing this, letting people kind of test the waters that isn't so potentially dangerous? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know that harm reduction is even necessarily synonymous with having people test the waters. Mm. It's not necessarily synonymous with moderation. Um, that bit, like you say, people use harm reduction in a lot of different ways. Uh, some people use the term to mean just the, let me introduce these concrete practices like safe consumption facilities. And other people use the term as a sort of liberatory philosophy about underlying structural and social change. So we, first we got to get clear on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, I, you know, I, because you bring a methadone, I think methadone is an interesting example. Um, is that even harm or I mean, it's just medical treatment. 
Is, yeah. is medical treatment, is, is it psychotherapy harm reduction? I don't know. I mean, the, the boundaries get very blurry there. And uh -huh. the, even the notion that methadone is a kind of quote unquote harm reduction versus just a straightforward medical treatment yeah. is a weird historical phenomenon um, that I was really surprised to learn. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book that I don't get to talk about all that much because people don't go as nerdy on like the modern <laughs> part, but I'll take, I'll take the privilege is, um, uh, there is this wild narcotic farm. It was basically the only place in the entire country that was doing serious addiction treatment and research from roughly the 1920s to like the 1960s or so, uh, where they, um, a couple of researchers, including a woman who wasn't allowed to get into the, the military as an orthopedic surgeon as she wanted during World War II, basically like came back to New York and figured out how to use methadone. The beautiful thing about the way they initially discovered methadone and they initially worked with methadone, um, Marie Neiswander, and then her collaborator, Vincent Dole, uh, was that it wasn't an either or, it wasn't an us versus them. That me The initial methadone treatment was started by a psychoanalyst who was really into psychodynamics. She was up in the middle of uh, Spanish Harlem when it was a, a rough neighborhood mm. and she would just hang out with her patients and they had these wraparound facilities where it wasn't just dispensing methadone. They also had job training. They also had housing assistance. They, they had all these other sort of like group and like really rich uh, therapeutic interactions. It was just medicine. Uh, and early participants in 12 step groups did not have a problem with, uh, with methadone. There was one person in New York, uh, who was called in the this is sort of a stigmatized term as you learned from the book, but um, the way he was referred to as the junkie priest yeah. is a priest who helped people get on methadone. Um, and a part of the reason why methadone has problems today is not because of any inherent problem with the substance. It's that um, governmental agencies across political spectra on both sides of the aisle uh, clamp down on methadone and turn methadone clinics from these very beautiful sort of holistic centers into these very narrow sort of extensions of the criminal legal system where they look like fortresses and people have to wait mm. in line at 7 a.m. to get their medications. And because of that, they get stigmatized. And that's yeah. part of the reason why the rest of society gets infected with anti-medication stigma. Mm. So you were asking me about like harm reduction versus abstinence. I bring that up because uh, people, some people will say, you know, methadone isn't real recovery or it's not really being clean. Uh, isn't that, isn't that harm reduction rather than abstinence? I mean, those, those labels and those definitions are, are changeable and they shift over time. And I think mm -hmm. if we had kept that sort of compassionate, humble, holistic, in the sense of multiple pluralistic paths to recovery, if we kept that approach, uh, that we wouldn't have as much of a division, um, mm, yeah. that ideolo ideology always tends to creep in, especially when it becomes like a policy level debate in addiction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I try to, I, I try to not be too strongly opinionated about, you know, because I've been to those meetings. I remember when I first got clean and just hearing people like Suboxone isn't being clean and nothing else. I'm like, listen, if that person isn't like stealing from their parents to go get high, I think their life's doing better than they could do whatever. That's, you know, that's a totally different conversation. But, you know, as far as like treatment goes and, and, Another reason I'm glad you're here because you're a you're a research guy. You look at data and stuff like that. So here's something that I think you can help shed some light on, maybe even enlighten me. And it's about success rates and treatment models. All right. So this is going to circle back to AA success rates. My girlfriend, my girlfriend loves sending me TikToks just to 
troll me. But anyways, there was this girl like popping off about AA success rates and like nobody gets there, you know, it's all low. And anyway, so quick little story for you. When I was working in treatment, part of my job was to follow up with people after treatment, right? Uh, I dealt with alumni, you know, I put events, but I also call, check in, how you doing? You know, remind them like, hey, you're going to therapy, you're taking your meds, whatever it is, right? Well, anyways, part of it was, are you still clean? Well, I also had a social media account for alumni, HIPAA compliant and all that good stuff. But anyways, I'd see people when they relapsed, right? I'd see them start posting that they're partying, you know, just looking high and, you know, whatever. And I'd call them, I'd call them and I'm not just going to be like, hey, saw you getting high. I'm just like, hey, how's it going? Oh yeah, Chris just celebrated six months sober and all that, right? And I'm supposed to put that data in the computer, even though mm -hmm. I know for a fact they're lying. So when we're talking about treatment success rates, it's very hard to even pin that down because of the shame associated with addiction. Like it's not just people like trying to lie. Like some people are ashamed. Some people don't want to admit that they relapse. There's a lot of shame associated with that. All right, circling back to AA, all right? I am of the belief that it is very, very, very hard to pin down AA success rates. Part of it being because of the second word in AA Anonymous, yes. right? Yeah. I've yeah. been to thousands of meetings in the last 10 years, thousands of meetings. I've never seen somebody in there just interviewing and recording data. My girlfriend's in her master's. No, they can't. Yeah. And my girlfriend's in her master's program for social work. The most they've had them do is just sit in on an open meeting, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that is it. So anyways, here's my question, Carl. Are, is there any, do you think, have you seen like the best study on AA success rates that doesn't have any type of issues with how they collected that data? Because my thing is, you're going to get more people who had a terrible experience with AA coming and self-reporting. And that doesn't seem like a very scientific way to calculate AA success rates. So that's my little rant. Lay it on me, Carl. <laughs> yeah. You hit the nail on the head, Chris. So I, there's an easy answer and a hard question. The easy answer is... There, we don't have good data on AA, and it's very simple why. Uh, it's because it's anonymous. You cannot study it in the way you're saying, where people go into the meeting and they track clipboards and all the rest. Uh, it just, it's just not possible. Um, what we do have, so here's the hard question. Um, what we do have is this sort of like one step removed set of studies mm. on AA. Um, and the main form of studying AA in this way is called 12-step facilitation therapy. And there are a lot of folks who have done research on this. And it's basically, if somebody is looking for treatment, you either refer them to AA along with some uh, orientation. Basically, you tell them, like, here's what to expect. And the first meeting you go to might be full of assholes, so make sure you go to three. Yeah. Uh, and somebody comes back and they say, hey, I'm really getting hung up on this notion of this or that. And you say, well, okay, well, here's the way other people think about it. So it's like a psychotherapeutic facilitation of AA. And then okay. you compare that to so-called treatment as usual. And that does have good success rates. That's also very complicated. I'll plug my own podcast, if you don't mind. Lay it on me. I didn't even know you had one. Go. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I do deep dive interviews with experts and people in the mm. world of addiction and recovery. And I had John Kelly, who is the first endowed professor of uh, psychiatry, I think, at uh, Harvard Medical School. And he runs a thing called the Recovery Research Institute. And he was the lead author on this massive meta-analysis called a Cochrane Review of studies on AA. And we talk about this a little bit. Um, and uh, you know his findings, basically, you can look 
is that I, I wouldn't want to quote specific numbers offhand. Um, his findings basically are that AA, those types of AA facilitations, those referrals are highly effective by some measures, at least as effective, if not more effective than standard treatments like CBT, which again, you know, cost money. Um, and his argument in his words is that um, it's a free lunch we're not taking as a country <laughs> to not um, be referring more people to that. Now, there are some really, really important caveats to that. And again, it's complicated. But the one most important caveat I want to say is that um, this is all AA research. It's all alcohol research. It's that, and we all know that mm. like, people might go to AA for help with an opioid problem or whatnot. But um, there's no reason to think that opioids are exactly the same. As you just yeah. said, um, somebody might be more able to like go out and have slips and relapses um, in alcohol. But, um, you know, we know from research that uh, by far the things that save lives for people with opioid use disorders are methadone and buprenorphine, period. There are other yeah. things that are probably helpful. There are other things that are worth doing and worth trying, uh, but really it's methadone and buprenorphine. Um, and it's still early stage enough, and this research has been so neglected. We don't have great research. I have a very good friend and colleague who's doing research on when to take people off buprenorphine, because this is a big question, because yeah. it doesn't need to be a life sentence. If somebody is like 10, 20 years sober, or even like two to five years sober, and they've changed their lives, they have a good social network, they're in recovery, whatever that means to them, they built up social supports and recovery capital. Do they need to be on buprenorphine for another 5, 10, 15 years? Probably yeah. not. But we don't have really good data because that's expensive to do to follow people out here as nearest. We don't have great data on when to stop that. Um, but I just wanted to say that it's important yeah. not to generalize too far on AA versus NA. We have very little uh, yeah. good research on 12-step programs and uh, opioids. Yeah, yeah. And I think the reason uh, uh, that I get so heated about that conversation is because, like, I am like a, hey, Medicare for all type guy, right? Like, the treatment center I work at here in Vegas, like, Without insurance, it was like 30 grand for a month, yes. right? With insurance, yeah. I saw people paying like $5,000 copays, you know? So with, with so many people just on the streets and so many, like when I got sober, no insurance, no money. My yeah. mom fortunately shoved me into a sober living that was $500 a month, which is on the cheaper side. Helped save my life. I was required to go to meetings, you know, whatever. So when I hear people talking about 12, they're like, oh, no, CBT, or, you know, they talk about like transcranial magnetic stimulation or, or whatever these treatment methods are. I'm like, who is going to pay for it? Because a lot of us addicts are just sitting on stacks of cash. All my money went towards drugs, you know? So I think that's why I get very frustrated when people like talk. I'm like, listen, listen, until we, until we like, you know, universalize like healthcare here, uh, there's yeah. an issue. But um, as far as medications, cause you, you just touched on like, uh, you know, for those who don't know, uh, buprenorphine, suboxone, right? Um, Here's a medication that helped me a lot because when I got clean, I lied to the, I lied to the doctor. I was like, Oh no, no withdrawals or whatever. I don't know why I was like, no, I'll barely take anything. Then withdraw here. And all the guys in my sober living, they were on Suboxone. Some of them, it was only five, six months, but their withdrawal, they're like, I wish I would have gone through opioid withdrawal. Right. So when you talk about the long term, that's what I remember. And that's why I'm like a fan of like tapering. I think at my treatment center, we tapered off of like two weeks for most people. But anyways, the medication I was on, which I never hear anybody talk about, um, was naltrexone. So that's what I was on. By the way, also, it wasn't covered under Medicare, so I was paying like, I think, 40 or 50 bucks a week just to take wow. it, right? And for yeah. me, I, I don't even know if it was a placebo effect, and if it was, 
awesome. But it took it, it helped reduce my cravings. My mind wasn't racing. Like I literally remember just sitting there fiending. And I was like, okay, mom, I'll try this. Cause she worked at a detox center and her, uh, the doctor recommended it. I got on it and like my cravings just subsided. But anyways, I'm curious your thoughts on that medication because I don't hear anybody talking about it. Maybe I was a lucky placebo person and I just thought it was reducing cravings. But, um, what, what are your overall thoughts on naltrexone and how it works and all that? Because I didn't have any withdrawals from that after six months, you know? Yeah. Just out of curiosity, you took it orally? You took it a pill form? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there yeah, another thing? Is there another? Yeah, because the way the way that it's actually more protective for overdose, that I'll just say as a general, not to give medical advice, oh, I always the, have to say the, the shot, disclaimer, but right? like, you yeah. know, just a, it, it's injected long term naltrexone, mm -hmm. then it lasts, um, you know, as, as opioids get stronger and we have more fentanyl and other adulterants yeah. that are not even opioids like xylazine. Um, it's not a it's not a magic bullet, but um, the injected formulation is actually better studied for stopping deaths. But I have seen that and people have studied naltrexone for alcohol cravings, yeah. opioid cravings, even um, some of the so-called behavioral addictions. I, I've seen it mm. in gambling in sex. And I think it's very heterogeneous for some people. They, they say what you say that, wow, this really helped out a lot. Um, for other people, it's nothing. And um, overall, the studies that we have are not super duper convincing about it. I think some there are some treatment providers who have um, oversold naltrexone as if it is a magic pill. Yeah. Um, but what this really points to is that there are, you know, one of the big points of the book is that medicine is not the end all be all, that we yeah. need it all. We need medicine and we need social policy and we need attention to like the deeper humanistic identity related dimensions of addiction. Uh, and there's just a lot more that medicine could be doing because in, because of a bunch of moral panics about drug use yeah. in the 1910s, 1920s, American medicine basically totally retreated from the treatment of addiction. Uh, they essentially gave up except for some very rich people at the very top. And even then, you know, describe the history of some of the founders of AA, and what's interesting about these stories is that some of these folks were super rich. Uh, mm -hmm. Marty Mann, uh, one of Bill W.'s first sponsees and a pivotal figure in terms of um, promulgating ideas about AA and addiction advocacy, was super wealthy socialite, had every single resource you could imagine, just could not get treatment until she eventually sort of blundered into uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in its very early days. So, the, you know, the point of that is we're still... And I felt that myself, you know, I saw that in treatment. I saw how people, when I was sent away to rehab, people were getting kicked out saying, no, 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 doc, I, I'm still having cravings. Please let me stay for one more week. No, sorry, the insurance yeah. cut you off. I mean, it's yeah. heartbreaking. And then people can't get yeah. access to medications either. We're still, we're still living with that legacy almost a hundred years later. And there's so many great addiction providers and addiction policymakers and addiction medicine, I think, is doing a great job of advancing advocacy because we need more treatment and we need better treatment. Um, but still, I mean, we're still we're still sort of struggling underneath that historical legacy. And that's one of the things that was so useful to me about the history is when you actually see how deep the roots go, it shows you that it's not a quick fix. It's not just about like a line item on a bill yeah. in Congress. It it has to it has to be about changing hearts and minds too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's something I, I kind of realized 
too, is just all the different components. So, you know, I, I do want to talk with you about how, how people do come, become addicted, because as you, uh, <laughs> you'd speak of in the book and even taught me quite a few things, how nuanced, like the risk factors are, right? Like, for example, uh, you know, my mom, she was a full blown alcoholic. She got sober when I was 20. Uh, I got sober when I was 27. My son was three. He just turned 13. And I am just watching that fool like a hawk, right? He's a good kid, all this stuff, but who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But anyways, uh, so some of the risk factors that I, you know, that I familiarize myself with, which I'm realizing aren't even like, you know, a checklist is like uh, basically like the biopsychosocial model, right? Like genetic components, right? What's your environment like? Like someone who's, you know, in a living uh, in an abusive household, they might be more prone to turn to substances. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of like behaviorism and just like training themselves and all that stuff. And then mental illness is a huge factor. People try to self-medicate. That was one of the reasons I started using was to self-medicate my depression and anxiety. So there's all these different components. So like just on that individual level, what do we know and what don't we know about like genetic components? And, you know, I, I guess, Overarching question, what what do you think would be helpful to know to reduce the risk factors for people becoming addicted? Is it the household, right? Because my first thing is like, hey, parents, quit sucking, and that'll help reduce these risk factors a lot, you know? <laughs> but what are what are some of the main ones out there? Yeah, there are there are many. So it's good that you use the plural because uh really going back centuries, there's been this notion that there was one answer. You know, I, I write about people in like the 1820s, 1830s who got really attached to biological explanations mm. as if everything could be boiled down to physical causes. And there were people who said, because it all has a physical cause, we need to find the right herbs and potions mm. and lotions to, to fix it. <laughs> and um, I, I think the first step in actually responding effectively to addiction and to thinking meaningfully about preventing addiction is to appreciate the diversity of the causes and conditions that go into it. So genetics are there, um, but in some ways I'm concerned that genetics have been overhyped. Uh, still, that you know, this was a big thing in the 1980s um, and went along with one, some of the social currents of the time, but there was a lot of hype about a so-called alcoholic gene and a lot of thought about determinism where people thought yeah. oh, I was born this way and therefore I don't have any, cho any choice, any chance to change myself, which is totally false. It's totally false. Uh, when we drill down, there are probably different types of addiction. There are at least big buckets of contributing factors that are different for different people. Uh, that's why I go to some of the historical examples in the book. You could look at, say, Thomas de Quincey, who wrote Confessions of an English Opium Eater in 1820. Uh, and he was an English romantic. He was like a luxuriant poet who was really interested in what we would call recreational use. And so for him, it was exposure. It was exposure to the novelty of opium in the form of the laudanum potion that he could just go and buy over the counter, uh, which has a sort of parallelism to a lot of dispensaries opening up and you know, just substances being much more available and being much more liberalized. But for other people, like for example, Bill Wilson himself, one of the founders of AA, he always described it as a hole in his soul and that mm -hmm. uh, he had an anxious temperament, that he was always restless and irritable, and that there was something that was in him long before he had any sort of exposure to alcohol. And some of the um, 
psychological research suggests that, that there's not one type of alcoholic personality. It's not like everyone with addiction can be put into a single bucket. Um, there are sort of different typologies is the jargon term for it. Some people are really sort of like reckless and impulsive and sensation seeking. Uh, so like De Quincey could go in that bucket. We could put William Burroughs in that bucket too. But other people um, like Bill Wilson or I put myself in this sort of general categorization are more just anxious, neurotic, uh, mm-hmm. restless. And then the drug is is relieving a certain kind of suffering. Um, and uh, so I, I agree with you that like the best prevention is to take care of someone as a whole human. Yeah. Not, not just being a, a, a better parent, but also making sure the kid is in a good society and a good um overall setting where they're being nurtured and all their their needs are being attended to uh there is no simple magic bullet for addiction prevention that can be somehow isolated from all those bigger questions about human flourishing and human well-being yeah so so to piggyback off that let me ask you about this because you touch on uh uh deaths of despair right mm-hmm. in the in the book and when i when i read that book um like it a lot of it seemed to make sense right because I, I i see so many and i'm sure you've seen this just when people are talking about social issues people use like mental health and uh the uh addiction as like their thing right like oh because of this that's why we have so many depressed people that's why we have so many you know <laughs> but anyways when i read uh you know deaths of despair and i just think about the the wealth inequality and how many people are struggling just to get by and all that um you know, just being stressed, like we're, we're looking for this escape, it seems like. So I'm curious, like how, how big of a contributing factor you think that is, right? Like people just not happy, right? They don't, they're not making enough money. They're going to jobs that they hate and, you know, they're working like insane amount of hours and still struggling to put food on the table and provide for their family. And you know, because I see that also contributing, like when I was mentioning, like, you know, bad parents, uh, like I see the stress that they're under, right? Like, yeah. I get it. Like, there's a lot of households where it's like, yeah, like, I don't think it's justifiable to come home and screaming your kids. Like something recovery taught me is I need to take care of me. It's not an excuse to be mad at my kid for stuff that's going on in my life, you know, whatever. But it seems like there's a lot of social and economic issues that do lead to people wanting to just, just zone out for a little bit with substances so i'm curious how like if if i turned you into a senator tomorrow is this something like that you would like try to address like do you think that's what's fueling a lot of mental health and addiction issues in the united states yes it's a huge issue it's an issue that tends to be overlooked uh the this notion that deaths of despair and a sort of social wounding is contributing to our addiction crises. Uh, in fact, that's something I saw as I trace back the histories of addiction epidemics in the past. The danger with addiction epidemics is people want a villain. They want a single, simple solution. And that's yeah. been true ever since that first tobacco epidemic that I mentioned in 1500s, 1510s, after mm-hmm. Columbus brought it back from North America. Um, a great example is this thing that happened in England called the gin craze where in the 1710s, 1720s, uh, there were all of these new mechanisms for producing gin, just the liquor gin. Uh, 
And there was also a corn surplus and there were all these other factors that all of a sudden people had spirits before, but it was the first time that spirits were really widely available, really potent, really cheap. Um, plus uh, there were these enormously profitable distilleries that were profiting off of gin. And so they actively hired people to go out and um, write tracks just like today's addiction supply industries do saying, oh, it's not really our product. It's bad people making bad choices. Yeah. And, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't blame the product. Like, the problem's not in the bottle. The problem's in the person. Exact same move that uh, alcohol the industries do today. <laughs> the sacrilege. They were, they were using exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. People know the sacrilege. People don't know that the alcohol industry does the exact same thing. Really? And we have big problems with alcohol now. And alcohol deaths have skyrocketed during COVID too. Mm -hmm. But then, so, you know, those are two factors, right? Like the, there's a, in that alcohol epidemic, uh, there was the novelty and the availability of the substance. And there was these powerful industries promoting the substance, but that wasn't enough. There was also this sort of alienation and despair because this very poor underclass during the industrial revolution was streaming into urban areas like London, especially. Uh, and it was that lack of access to meaningful work and to opportunity and the, the general problems and social wounding that was going on during that time that was also a contributor. So we tend to latch on to the simple answers. We tend to latch on to like, say, the Sacklers and say, that's the sum total, that's the main problem. Or we say there's something so uniquely powerful about the drug that the drug is the thing that's doing all the work, whether it's crack in the 1980s or whether it's alcohol during the temperance movement or you know opioids today. Uh, but if we don't keep in mind those multiple levels of the different causes of epidemics at the social level, then we miss out on the richest on the individual level. All of those social ideas are just a mirror for how mm -hmm. we make sense of and how we understand and how we respond uh, to addiction. So I do think, um, you know, I don't know what I would do if I were a senator. I'd probably resign. <laughs> it sounds like an awful job. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, yeah, you know, I do think that we need attention to all of those underlying social stresses, inequality, alienation, outright oppression, um, housing instability, uh, all the rest. Um, but we also don't have to sit on our ass and just wait for that to be somehow magically solved Absolutely. because I don't think that gets yeah. solved. There are also immediate and concrete things we could be doing right now. Like, for example, better regulating powerful industries that push potentially harmful products. Yeah, yeah, very, very well said. And Carl, I wish I could keep you here all day, but let me let me finish up with one last question. Uh, I will try to make it a brief one, but I want to talk about the disease model addiction real quick. So another quick little rant I'll go on, right? Like for me, when I read uh, the doctor's opinion in the big book, uh, it made sense to me, right? <laughs> the, the, the allergy, right? Just relating it to an allergy. And yeah, now we know it's a little bit more nuanced and everything, but I'm like, okay, like, Something happens, something happens when I drink and use, I don't know what it is, still don't know, science hasn't you know, figured it out yet, but when I drink and use, that's what happens. But there's this idea, and you touch on this in the book, right? Where there's this idea, which I think is insane, like, you know, all the meetings I've been to, working in treatment, I've never heard somebody say, oh, addiction's a disease? Well, there goes my responsibility. I don't have to do anything. That'd be like me diagnosing someone with cancer and them just never getting treatment. You know what I mean? Like you, it feels like, it seems like that's just such a, just like, just, I, I don't know. I don't like that argument. Cause I'm like, no, because people with diseases get treated all the time. You know, like if, 
my my dad he he got diagnosed as diabetic he wasn't just like oh hey i got diabetes just shove my face with cake no he he watches it and he tweets it and he you know he does a little pokey poke on his finger and all that so anyways uh like and and yeah and it seems like you know there's a lot of nuance to how we define the word disease too you know but I, I just don't, I don't know if I'm a fan of like telling an addict, like, hey, addiction's a disease, you know, whatever. It's just going to make them just totally, totally be non-responsible for their actions forevermore. So, uh, so yeah, to wrap, to wrap it up, what are, what are your thoughts? Should we get rid of calling it a disease? Like what, what, what are your thoughts around just using that word? I think we should be curious about that word, but I'm, a, I'm worried about that word. Okay. And I say it that way because I don't want to police other people's languages. I've met people who have gotten tremendous benefit and clarity from the label disease. Yeah. I don't even think there's a disease model. The problem with disease is that there's dozens of models. And sometimes even coming out of the same person's mouth, they mean different things with the same term. So disease can be a double-edged sword. I've seen it be very helpful in terms of... Um, diminishing stigma for some people. David Sheff writes about this, mm -hmm. that the, the disease label actually helped him to get a bit more compassionate toward his son, Nick. Yeah. And say it's not really his fault. Um, uh, the notion of disease was really useful in the 1950s and 1960s when some of those early AA affiliated advocates, it wasn't AA because AA doesn't do advocacy itself, but people who were in AA were doing advocacy and they used the word disease um, to say, hey, listen, if somebody's in life-threatening alcohol withdrawal, you should treat them them hospitals because at that point the doors were completely and totally closed um mm -hmm. so those are those are positive things about the the word disease but then it has also been used ever since say the 1780s 1790s when people first started thinking about medical concepts related to addiction disease has been used in really harmful ways it's been used mm -hmm. to promote pessimism and fatalism and to imply um mostly from outsiders or from treatment professionals like hey these drunks can't get any better and so we'll literally move them to colonies and wait for them to die. Or in the time of eugenics, forcibly sterilize people with addiction. Uh, yeah. you know, so the, the, the notion of disease has been used as a weapon. And in fact, in, in some of the psychological studies that we have, um, it's messy. It's messy, but there's some indication that on average, um, disease language actually promotes pessimism. It makes other yeah. people more likely to want social distance from people with addiction. And it makes people believe less in their own capacity to grow and to change and to enter recovery. So I think we should be very, very cautious about disease. Yeah. And I think usually when people use the word disease, you know, their objectives could be met just as easily by other, other concepts that aren't so laden, you know, that aren't so loaded with so many associations yeah. going back hundreds of years. Yeah, I, I will. I will say this, and this will be, you know, uh, my last big plug of your book. Like, this is what I loved about your book too. You talk about just like the spectrum, right? Like, and that I there's so many things. Like, uh, this we we see so many issues, just not just addiction, but so many things in black and white, and so many things are on the spectrum. You know what I mean? And I think it helps people see like the varying degrees and the nuances and all that. But, but yeah, I absolutely love the book. I thought I was, uh, you probably saw me tweet about it. I thought I was going to hate it because I don't like books about history, but your book killed it and I binged it. So for everybody who wants to read the book, because we barely scratched the surface of what you dive into, uh, I know it's out, but it's an event out everywhere. Where can people get it? Is it international? 
what's going on? Where can people yeah, find Yeah, yeah. The best way is to go to my website. So if you go to carlericfisher.com, I got links there. I've got information there. All the major retailers. Um, there's some international stuff. Uh, it's out in the UK and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, et cetera. Um, there's a Dutch translation coming soon. Japanese, Korea, Chinese rights. Um, mm. I'm happy to say we're just sold. Um, so it's making its way out there. It's making its way out there. Um, but the the best way is my website because I I um I post up some information there. There's some links to some excerpts and some prior events I've done. And like I mentioned, I've got that uh, podcast, which is almost sort of a companion to the book. What I found is that um, I, I so enjoyed talking to some of the experts and people across different fields, philosophers, historians, that I, I wanted mm. to keep the conversation going. So if you're on the fence, check it out. And if you're interested, uh, you'd probably like the book too. And what is the name of your podcast, Carl? Let it it's on called me. Flourishing After Addiction. Got it. Okay, cool. So I'm going to link all that down in the description. And Carl, it has been a pleasure. We'll have to do this again sometime. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Chris. It was really good to meet you. And I can tell this is really close to your heart and you really care. Uh, so I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Absolutely. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Carl Fisher. I know that I sure did. I could talk to him all day about this. I could talk about this topic as well, but you know, I'm not going to because you need to go out and grab his book. And if nothing else, I hope you learned a little bit more about the nuances and how complex this is and, you know, uh, different ways of looking at addiction. But, you know, as I mentioned, like, I love how he discusses you know, uh, addiction and how it's on a, uh, on a spectrum. But, you know, most importantly, I love talking about, you know, AA and the success rates and how they research it because Carl is somebody who actually looks at those research. And I, it, it is one of like the things that just really drives me bonkers is all the misconceptions and the stigma around this free program. Because in my opinion, until we get free healthcare for everybody, we need to lay off AA because it's providing a free service that is helping far more people than it is hurting. All right. But if you have the option to get some evidence-based treatment, like you do you boo. All right. But for people like me who had no other options, AA is important. So check out Carl's book in it. He talks about AA, different, uh, forms of therapy and all sorts of stuff. All right. So head down to the description, follow Carl over on social media, grab a copy of his book. And yeah, I'll also link his podcast down below as well. So you can check that out. All right. But anyways, before I let you go uh, again, a quick reminder, make sure to follow me on social media at the rewired soul on Instagram, Twitter, uh, over on TikTok. If you're a TikToker, check me out over there. I just started it up. I'm trying to grow my following and stuff like that and doing some cool stuff because, you know, a lot of people on TikTok actually like to read. So trying to put some content over there. So follow me on TikTok. If you're not on TikTok, tell your friends. Tell your friends who uh, use TikTok to give your, your boy a follow. All right. Uh, but other than that, uh, some ways to help support the podcast that are absolutely free is one, share this episode. If you like this conversation with Dr. Carl Fisher, if you think it's important, if you think people can benefit from it, share it over on Twitter, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Reddit, whatever it is, share it, help get the word out there. All right. And the other way you can help support the podcast is head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a quick rating and review. All right. These things help with the algorithms and to get the word out there and grow our beautiful little community of people who just love to learn and have conversations. 
All right. But some other ways you can help support the podcast. One of them, head over to the rewired sold substack.com. It's linked down in the description. If you become a paid subscriber, five bucks a month or $50 for the year, you get all of these regular episodes, uh, entire day early. It's a little, a little perk for you. So if you're impatient and you want the episodes early, go subscribe over on Substack. All right. Next, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. If you're interested in learning uh, my personal story about addiction and recovery, uh, I have written a book about that uh, that's available on the website, as well as some books uh, about mental health in general. But most importantly, I wrote a book called Caught in the Crossfire because something I realized working in treatment is that most people just have somebody in their life who is struggling with addiction. So I wrote that book for loved ones affected by addiction. So head over to the rewiredsoul.com. You can get uh, one of my books. And lastly, there is an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. It's one of the main ways that I've stayed sober is caring about my mental health. And something that I have personally used is BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, you work with a licensed therapist from your state. It's super convenient. You can call, FaceTime, text. Uh, and yeah, uh, if you don't like your therapist, no awkward conversations, you click a little button, boom, new therapist. But yeah, it really personalizes the type of therapist you get, you know, based on what you're dealing with. So it's a super cool service. So head down, check that affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Dr. Carl Fisher. Um, for coming on, but not only that, like the work he is doing again, one of the best books I've read on the topic, make sure you grab a copy. It's linked down in the description below. And yeah, for all of you have an amazing rest of your day and stay tuned. I have so many new episodes coming up that it will blow your brain up. A lot of them are on topics that I haven't even covered yet because I've been trying to diversify my reading. So we have a lot of great guests coming up. All right, so stay tuned, have a good one, and I'll see you next time.